0: It's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talkin' Ag Lane Nordland for today's LaneCast.
1: Hello, everyone. It's time for another agriculture conversation on the LaneCast Ag Podcast. As cattle producers continue to watch many issues that impact the cattle industry from the cattle markets, transparency within those markets, drought, Access to hook space and being able to engage with consumers, there's a lot of factors and issues on the minds of cattlemen and women across the countryside. During the Montana Stock Growers Convention, I hosted an industry panel discussing the supply chain in the cattle and beef business. We were joined by every sector of the beef industry, all the way from cow-calf to the packing industry. I was joined by cow-calf producer Jim Steinbeiser from Sydney, Montana, Tom Jones, a Kansas feeder with High Plains Feeders, Shane Flowers with Montana Pure Meats on the retail end of things, and JBS cattle buyer Fred Nichols. It was an interesting conversation, to say the least. We covered a lot of topics, and I may have missed a few topics because we went with the flow of how that conversation went while also taking written questions from the audience. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope I answer a few of the questions you may have as we look at the supply chain in the beef business here at the end of 2021. And if we didn't cover some of those issues, I hope I can down the road. We'll be back with that full panel discussion on the beef supply chain, but first we're going to take a quick commercial break and thank our friends at Whipfly for sponsoring today's podcast. You've worked hard to build a successful farming or ranching operation. That's why when you evaluate your assets and determine your best strategy long before you're ready to transfer ownership, you set future generations up for success. At Whipfly, our dedicated team of egg professionals are ready to help you navigate the complexities of succession and family transition planning. Remember, it's never too early to start planning. Let Whipfly's Egg Business Transition Specialists help you create your unique roadmap for success. Contact us today or learn more at Whipfly.com. Well, here are our four panelists, and I do ask, like I said, we got a lot of questions, we, a lot of, we have a lot of concerns, we have a lot of frustrations out in the countryside. And I want to welcome everyone here, and uh, we're going to have a great conversation here today, but we'll have a great talk, and let's all be respectful out in the audience. Again, you can write those questions down, uh, and we'll collect those and ask those here at the end of our conversation. Our first panelists... Familiar to many of you here in the audience is Jim Steinbeiser, president of the Montana Stock Growers. He is representing the cow-calf sector in today's conversation. Uh, Jim Steinbeiser, of course, was elected to the board of directors of Stock Growers and as president back in 2020. Uh, Steinbeiser, along with his two brothers and one cousin, owns and operates VS Incorporated. That's a diversified farm raising several cash crops feed for their feedlot, and wintering for their cows. The ranch uh, where Steinbeiser lives is in West Sydney, while the farm and feedlot are located south of Sydney. So let's welcome our first panelist, Jim Steinbeiser. (laughs) Representing the retail chain, uh, very familiar here in Billings and in eastern Montana is Mr. Shane Flowers. Uh, Shane grew up in Cody, Wyoming on the Carter Ranch, which is part of the Hoodoo Ranch. If he's very active in FFA, going to be a state officer in the 94-95 year. Agriculture has always been a passion of his. Shane judged Livestock at Northwest College in Powell, Wyoming as well. For almost 15 years, Shane and his wife, they've uh, bought and operated Project Meats out east of us in Shepherd. At the time, it was a custom slaughter facility. They remodeled and added a retail lobby back in 2009. They also became state inspected that year. In 2014, they added a retail facility on Grand Avenue here in Billings. And in 2019, they moved that to 32nd and King Avenue. They were searching desperately to expand their operation in 2018 and 19. And finally, they came across an opportunity in early 2020 to buy quality meats in Miles City. They changed the name to Pure Montana Meats. Shane has three kids. The two oldest are working in the business and they also have a daughter who is 13. Shane, thanks for joining us here today. Let's welcome him to our convention. (laughs) Fred Nichols is representing the packer industry with JBS. Fred has been in the cattle industry for over 40 years and has been buying cattle for almost all of those years. Originally from Iowa, Fred started buying cattle at the age of 20 in the northwest part of the state, and when he was hired by Monforts and started buying cattle around the Oklahoma area. After years of buying cattle in the country, he moved to the Montfort headquarters in Greeley and has remained in Greeley ever since. Fred now manages the cattle buying for JBS's feed beef plants, fed beef plants, excuse me, in Utah and Colorado in the Greeley area. Fred brings years of experience and firsthand knowledge of both the cattle feeding and beef businesses. Fred, thanks for joining us here. And representing the feeder sector from Garden City, Kansas, is Tom Jones. He operates High Plains Feed Yard, a 50,000 head capacity yard with commercial feeders, and he also has an education and research facility located on the yards as well. 22 years on that to High Plains Feed Yard and has 280 active customers that they feed with. So let's welcome Tom Jones to the stage. Thank you so much. So just starting things off so we can familiarize everyone a little more from uh, fr- from my intro there. You all can do a lot better job than I can, but uh, uh, we'll start with Jim here. Tell us about uh, your, your operation and business a little more. It, it can be complicated working with family, but uh, the Steinbeisers seem to do a pretty good job about it. But let's just talk about your operation and your duties within uh, the corporation.
2: Elaine, that's probably one of the reasons that uh, when we're in the middle of a resolution session. Um, a little uh, debate and a little disagreement is, is uh, pretty familiar to me. Um, I, I have that at home all the time. And, and the good thing about that is we learn how to work through the differences and, and um, come come together enough to, to be going the same direction. So yeah, we have a dif- diversified farm and, and ranch and that includes a cow-calf. Uh, Segment uh, a small feedlot segment probably has one-time capacity of around 3,000 head and a sizable irrigated farm Which produces cash crops such as sugar beets soybeans and most of the rest of the stuff is uh, raised for feed
1: Well, thanks for that and uh, I'll move on to Tom. Let's talk more about uh, your family's operation uh, in the feeding business
3: Well, uh, I put an investment group together in 19 uh, 90 and uh, we formed High Plains Feed Yard. Uh, it was an 18,000 hit feed yard when we started. We're at 50,000 now. Uh, we have uh, a diverse customer base, uh, I guess basically coast to coast and border to border. We've got several Montana customers in here as well. Um, we've moved from uh, commodity cattle or really or planar cattle that you typically think of in the southwest uh, part of the country to more of a uh, to more of a, a higher quality, higher grading uh, uh, type of animal, uh, so uh, we uh, have a lot of dairies that have moved into our area as well, in the last uh, 10 years. So we've been uh, we've been working with our dairy partners down here and developing some composite uh, dairy on beef cattle. Uh, in the last few years, we do have a research uh, center. Um, we study uh, feed, feeding cattle efficiency. We have uh, we can do 400 head at a time on on Our grow safe nodes. We also have green feed machines out there as well. It's a it's a new uh, it's a new a new uh, type of equipment that we measure methane and carbon dioxide emissions. So uh, I have a PhD DVM on staff that does my uh, my research manager, and I uh, ABS also has an office in in my uh, in my research center as well. So I have a geneticist on staff as well uh, to help us you know make our uh, genetic decisions.
1: Well, again, Tom, thank you for a a brief overview uh, of the feedlot, and I know we'll dive into more especially the labor issues, the the input costs here in just a second. Uh, Moving on to Shane Flowers uh, with Ranch House Meats and and Pure Montana Meats. Uh, Let's share more about your operation working with your family and really uh, kind of being at the forefront uh, of providing uh, um, um, producers an opportunity to have their their meats bought and, and distributed here regionally
4: yeah uh, so my wife tanya and i bought uh, project meets 2007 i guess and uh, really always under the impression that we were going to put a retail store out um you know we we believed in in what montana raised and produced uh wanted um, the opportunity to get more of that out to people even back then so you know it takes a while to build all those programs and get you get you where you want to go but uh, currently we uh service uh, Geez, I don't even know how many restaurants, U.S. Foods, Cisco, Shamrock, um, with a lot of the products that we produce anymore. Um, we've got uh, Snack Sticks and uh, Jerky um, is starting to move across the nation right now. I think Texas and California and uh, in between there, we, we've got product out there at this point. Um, we, we think there's a lot to offer out of uh, what Montana gives. It's what we kind of push for. Um, my younger son's been running my, uh, we call it our value-added facility, is what we turned Project Meats into out in Shepherd. Um, we now call it Ranch House Sausage Company. Uh, we outgrew the kill capacity in that facility quite some time ago. I realized that when one of, the, one of the rails fell out of the ceiling, we was probably overdoing that place, and it was time to do something else. But uh, anyway, he, he manages that. We put a lot of money into it in the last year um, for high-efficiency production equipment, um, knowing labor is always an issue. We, we've done everything we can to um, push product through those facilities that are very push button operation. Um, the kill side of it for us, uh, we've been able to double our size by taking that into Mile City, probably dang near triple our size of capacity. We just have to get the crew to put it together, but that's obviously a labor intensive process, so that one's not nearly as easy to uh, automate and get that thing rolling. Um, but uh, we, we do private labeling, custom processing, as well as uh, our own processing for um, cattle all over um, that we can get in there and move out to restaurants and different things like that.
1: All right. Thanks, Shane. And next, we have Fred Nichols with uh, JBS out of uh, Greeley, Colorado. Uh, Share more, obviously, people have heard about JBS. It's a discussion that people have all the time.
0: I know you about it once in a while. I I bet you do. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, it's a good, solid company. I think the world of it, we have nine plants in the U.S. We kill from Holstein cows to cows to bulls to we have a natural program on Holsteins and Tollopson, a natural program in Greeley. Uh, and our uh, all fed plants, uh, just basically good commodity cattle and up, uh, uh, looking for prime and choice and hunting and grade. We do about at one time we were doing about twenty eight thousand a day, and you know we're backed off a little bit. You know I'd say the industry's running around ninety percent currently, and we're right in the mix. And uh, well, appreciate the invite to come up and meet some of you people. Wonderful place. I come up here, and I think I buy a pretty decent volume of cattle out of Montana, and they're just wonderful, wonderful cattle They kill awful good. We've got a Brian O'Craigley up here. You might all know him. He represents us, does a nice job, and sends us some wonderful cattle out of Montana.
1: Well, Fred thank you and uh, again let's give a round, uh, round of applause for uh, all of our uh, panelists taking the time to come up here with us here today and uh, the, our, our, that uh, next area that I really want to focus on is the challenges that we see specifically in each of our uh, respective uh, areas and I, I think it's best to just start to, in the process as we look at the beef uh, life cycle so, so Jim uh, stock growers president hat aside as a producer out every day what challenges do you see that impacts your operation as a cow-calf producer the the most, and, and as you look at uh, most of our cow-calf operators and members here uh, that, that relate to that issue as well?
2: Well, certainly, um, weather is, is one of the things that we deal a lot with. And, and in saying that, uh, you know, our challenge as I look at it is to have an efficient cow, by efficient I mean something that that uh, can make a living on some fairly rough country without a lot of uh, special care, and yet raise a calf that's uh, got the quality grade that Fred's looking for, yet has some yield. So those three don't necessarily just automatically um, mix together well. So to me, it's finding that balance of having a cow that can make a living without a lot of groceries, yet raise a calf that's fairly high quality and yet has some yield. Um, so those are the challenges. Um, of course, weather is one of the reasons I'm looking for that kind of cow. And yes, we raise uh, a lot of feed on our irrigated farm, but we'd prefer to run that through the feedlot and not through our cows. Uh, we don't find that as economic uh, smart choice. So those are some challenges.
1: And really, you can look at those challenges as, you know, uh, over the years that you see that, but maybe let's bring it closer to maybe this year, and maybe not for yourself, but other producers that are out here. We've seen a lot of our hard work and our genetics because we didn't have hay. The drought has pushed us to sell our herds. How do you see that impacting the, the cow-calf sector here in Montana in the near term and in the next three to four
2: years? Well, one of the things that's a little frustrating now is, is you know, We in this North country, and that's where I live, that's what I know, I'm not putting down any other parts of the United States, but certainly we're known for our quality, high quality cattle, and we put a lot of um, capital into having those high quality cattle, a lot of management, and we're not seeing a return on that, and it's very frustrating.
1: Well, well, we'll talk about those returns here as well, and uh, uh, moving down to, to Tom there, uh, what, what challenges are you seeing that are impacting the feeding sector the most right now?
3: You know, we, the things we look at in southwest Kansas is, of course, number one is our labor, and then uh, the, the next thing we look at is, is our water issues that we're dealing with down there as well. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we grow a lot of irrigated corn out there, and uh, we're pumping our aquifer down, so we. So we're uh, we're in the middle of uh, trying uh, sampling some different uh, different feeds to to put back into cattle, such as we had we moved to a wheat corn mix uh, this summer, uh, this last summer, and uh, we're looking at uh, we're doing some studies now on on, uh, on some milo, some uh, grain sorghum things in order to you know get away from our water usage. Uh, marketing is an issue for us right now. Uh, you know, with the, as many customers as we have. Um, uh, our our Cal Calf retained ownership people, and then just investor type uh, customers as well. Um, how do I how do I keep these guys in business? And, and uh, that's my job's not just to feed cattle for these guys. It's to it's to, they've got an operation that that's got to work as well. And so that's that's I guess are the top things that are troubling me today.
1: And uh, as we look at more of our retailer side here regionally, uh, Shane, what are some of those challenges? And you can throw labor in there too, because that's one of the points I want to talk to if if that pops up.
4: Yeah, um, so obviously from a retail standpoint, I I think one of our biggest challenges, in fact, we have a a new website launching uh, tomorrow, I believe it is, is marketing i mean you know when when you're dealing with i I always laugh at people they walk in and say well you know i could get this at costco at this price i said well if my parking lot was that big i could probably do that too but you know i only have so many people walking through my door and i have to cover my overhead so you know we have to market and push ourselves pretty hard as a small company to get people's attention because it's so easy for them to walk into a grocery store and pick up whatever's at that grocery store rather than walking into our store and then still having to go to the grocery store anyway. So so we we have to work really hard at trying to give them something to really bite off on and really enjoy so that they keep coming back. You know um, you, you preach the local, you preach you know there's a lot of different scenarios in cattle. Obviously you're grass fed, you're natural, you're organic, all these different things and and realistically I, i've always preached that i want to be in the 90 percent so 90 percent of the people just want a good corn you know grain fed beef and and so that's what i focus on and that's all i do but i still am just pushing local so local gives us a little little more of a struggle to get people in your door and, and trying to get there not that they don't want it it's just that they're not paying attention to it it's whatever's easiest and convenient for them um, labor from a, a whole company standpoint is my biggest issue I, I've probably only been running 30% capacity in my harvest facility lately because of uh, labor. USDA did a great job of putting out uh, grants in the last year to try to uh, ramp up some of those kill facilities, you know, and that's great. I actually don't have anything against that. We need more kill facilities, but what it did was it spread out all the skilled labor through these. So, you know, and then all of a sudden pretty soon we're all each headhunting our, our skilled labor out of these plants. So. You're, you're running at a minimum of skilled laborer and you're bringing in any, any knucklehead with a heartbeat and trying to make something happen with them. So it makes it kind of challenging a little bit as far as being productive and putting that product out there as quickly as you can. I'd like to see 100% capacity. It sure makes it easier to cover your overhead when you're at 75 to 100% capacity and it is at 30 or 40%, so.
1: How, how do we solve that uh, skilled labor issue, especially on, on, on your size of an operation? Uh, how, how do we partner in the countryside through extension to, to incentivize folks to, to seek
4: uh, a training in,
1: in meat processing?
4: Well, I think it really stems from the school's been pushing college for years and years and and, uh, they're starting to turn a little bit to where they're pushing trades, which I really like to see, you know, and obviously your plumbers, your mechanics, your welders are gonna get uh, top seat because they they pay better than than a processor does by far, Um, but it's also on our industry to try to start paying better. We gotta figure out how do we get those wages up there, what kind of benefits can we give these people to get more of them interested in the industry because, uh, you know, we, we train, almost everybody I have in my facility I've trained, Uh, as a company we've trained and uh, you know so now I want to keep them and so you can find the people that like it but it's to try to entice them into it's the hard part so you have to get something out there and as an industry I think we've failed ourselves year in and year out by not paying what should be paid Um, as well as you know I've even went as far and I know some other small companies like ours looking for uh, immigrant help and we don't have the opportunity to do that because of the size of our business we're not agriculture really so they won't let us run like a farmer rancher would uh h2b i think they're called or something to that effect anyway and uh so so we don't have those options so realistically all i can do is try to drudge up what i can throughout the state and just find the best ones and try to train them i don't know that there's a lot more else we can do other than just try to keep pushing kids that trades are not a bad opportunity you can make a good living and have a great life at a trade job so
1: well, thanks for those comments, Shane. And uh, Fred, uh, obviously the challenges uh, uh, at JBS, uh, being a, a large employer, labor will be part of some of those challenges. I know it's one of the most diverse workforces in the US, uh, the, 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 the workforce that works in these plants. So what are some of those uh, key challenges? And throw labor,
0: let's discuss that as well. Well, obviously labor's a key. It'll be surprising how many, like at our Greeley facility, we have 27 different languages spoken in that plant. So we're hiring from every direction. What's really helped us, we renegotiated the labor rates and the starting pay there is 21 and a half bucks an hour. I mean, now you got people that are turning it into a profession and they're making 40, 50, 60, $70,000 a year and it honestly is slow to, our turnover rate down where the plants would be 50-60% turnover rate in a year. We've slowed that up and we're maintaining our labor and it's helping us out on our production. You don't have to retrain. It's actually actually working and I think it's going to pay off. So, uh, but we've done that at all our plants across the U.S., I think all over the world actually. But uh, it was a good investment in labor and training and trying people treat people right. What we've had to do is you know, to, to last spring and last summer when we were putting in a lot of hours, the employees came in, they didn't know if they were going to work 8 hours, 9 hours or 10 hours. Okay, so we restructured it with it, let the unions pick their poison basically. Okay, do you guys want to work 10 hours a day and have a Saturdays off this time? Or do you want to work 8 hours a day and then be off 9 hours a day and it's all different at different plants? So. We'll work our employees at this plant. They want off at eight hours a day. We let them off at eight hours a day. We stick with it. We promise them. Like in Hiram, though, they used to work 10 hours a day, five and six days a week. That's a full week. Well, they decided they wanted to do nine hours. So we're doing nine hours. So it slowed production up a little bit, but it slowed up the turnover rate. We've got a lot happier employees, and it's honestly starting to pay off for us.
1: Well, again, thank you. I, I mean, obviously, labor is one of those key challenges as we look at the overall scope uh, of our businesses. And uh, the pandemic really put a spotlight on every aspect of, of the sector sitting up here. And uh, Shane, I know you mentioned USDA threw a lot of money out there to try to keep things going. Um, and you know they've committed over $550 million to processing expansion. Um, I'll start right here with you Jim do you think that this 550 million dollars uh, this expansion or to expand processing is that going to help you as a cow-calf producer if the funds are allocated correctly I guess what what is your take on that
2: it sounds like a lot of money until you start spreading it out and, and um, so it's not um, you know I'd like to think it'll help some but but uh, um, it's not a Enough, I don't think to make a, a big impact, but at least maybe at least a little bit of an impact.
1: And, and Tom, for yourself, uh, being in the feed, feed business, obviously you saw that backlog really start during COVID as well, uh, really getting hit hard probably by uh, those shutdowns that we did see. But when you look at that amount, uh, is, this, is it helpful to you? Um, or what are some of your suggestions would you share with Secretary Vilsack?
3: You know, uh, it's uh, something you brought up. There was one of the most frustrating things we had. We had cattle that were finished, ready to go, and we had to take them sometimes, you know, twenty, thirty, forty days past their finished, their optimum end, in end, end weight, or days on feed, and and uh, that got very expensive for our customers, and and it was, uh, it was, uh, w- with the pandemic issues and, and what happened at, at, at Fred's businesses on top of us. You know, we just couldn't get the cattle running through the thing. So it was, it was, it was a. It was a very costly thing for our producers, and 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 uh, and it, the, the turmoil that it sets. You know, so so we have a packing plant on top of us. They can't get their labor in. We can't get working. So we're balled up at the feed yard. Then I've got Jim's got cattle. Jim has cattle he needs to send to us. So we've got those cattle just it just start stacking cattle back behind us all over. So it's a very frustrating thing. It has a lot of cost to the cattle coming through. Um, by the time we get them finished, um, so. You know, we lived through all of that, and now, we're, now these skills are kind of starting to open up. So some of that pressure is relieved off of us right now. But uh, that was a, it was a real struggle.
1: And maybe let's talk about that relationship that you have with your buyers, uh, with your packing buyers. What uh, what is that like? And uh, obviously, we talk a lot about cash cattle trade up here on our market reports. What what is it like uh, dealing with that negotiated trade or the deals that may be done uh,
3: to, to try and get your clients' cattle sold? Oh, I hate them. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we all want to hear. But I don't have a packing plant. Well, not now, anyway. And and and. Uh, it's, uh, it's a frustrating thing. Uh, if you don't mind, you know, if we, since we dropped off of that, can I show you a slide or yeah, two? Yeah, show your slides. Yeah. And, 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 and this, is, this, is, uh, this is part of our problem. I'll try to get this up if I can, uh, see what we've got out here. So the reason we're all here talking today anyway is, is, uh, is what's, what's happened to us. Uh, and and why are we why are we in this why are we, why are we having this problem and you can see what's happened here's our fed cattle price the percentage of composite cutout this is all 20 up to 2019 data because i don't want to get into the pandemic issues because that that just that just messed it up even further don't you agree fred yes. but w- when we when we look we come in here we this, our, our share of the composite cutout we dropped 270 ahead of it uh, back through 2019. so uh, and uh uh Basically, that was caused by this, and, and, and these are the years we don't remember. We, we remember what, what, we, what happened to us in, in 14 and 15 when we, were, we had all the margin, we had the leverage against the Packers. We didn't feel too sorry for them then because, you know, we're, we're, we're both, we're all competitive about it. We're always after making a dollar. But we go back to 2000 with the Swift Plant and Garden City burned down. It was killing. Was that a 4,000 head a day kill, Fred?
0: Yes, a yeah, little over
3: a little over 4,000 head a day in Garden City burned down. And uh, it had been out there for years and years. And so um, that, that, was a, that was the start of it. The fire there shut that plant down. It did not get rebuilt. And so as we move forward through the years '05 Tyson closed down West Point in Boise, uh, Emporia in 2008, and National closed Raleigh in 14. It's up and running again, I guess. Cargill closed Plainview in 2013. And then we lose Denison and PM Beef. So we lose 18, 20,000 head of kill capacity. And and I think that's that's what has that's what has driven this marketing issue that we have right now. Are, are we upset with our Packers? No. It's it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating to work for them. But but you know we've we've I think part of this is our own problem. We've created a we created a lot of our own problems. Um, and what's very very frustrating too is I, and I have to thank all you cow-calf guys look what look what you've done to quality grades out here right now We went from we've gone from 50 60 percent choice up into the it's easy to be averaging 80 percent choice We've got cattle now coming out of our yard with the genetic selection that we've done uh, There was some of these uh, seed stock guys were we're running we had a group of cattle run hundred percent prime uh Last week, and this guy has been moving up. He's been averaging 88% prime for the year, and we had a set of cattle run through, bring over $300 a head over the market uh, because they all the graded prime. The spreads are really wide. Uh, Jay's got cattle in with. He's been 90% choice for I don't know how many years, and moving up the prime chain as well. But I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is the issues that. That, that are happening to us today is, is, is we haven't slowed our production down very much. We're, we're, we're killing cows now like crazy. So we're, we're gonna get a little bit more leverage on it, but we've, we've just had, there's too many cattle to go through the chain. There's not enough hook space today. That I think is our worst problem. And, but I'll say another thing too. I, I don't believe as a feed yard, we do the best job we can as marketing for the cattle. Eater. Fred and I both, both grew up in, in the packing business when we were younger and, uh, if you guys can remember back to the late 70s and early 80s, it was a pretty aggressive time, and the numbers will show you that up there. It was a pretty aggressive time to be a cattle buyer, uh, and, and we chased after cattle. And uh, I, don't think there's, I don't think there's anybody that paid too much for cattle in the country as a cattle buyer than Fred Nichols over here right, sitting right next to me, because I know because he was as a competitor of mine at that time frame. But right now, there's this is tough marketing. We just don't have enough hook space.
1: And when we look at that hook space uh, when, when we're trying to find solutions obviously we're here trying to learn more trying to actually talk through these issues that we have when, when you were looking at increasing that hook space um, when we look at these smaller to mid-sized plants trying to uh, get some funding trying to make them more regionalized how how do we keep these smaller plants being uh, gobbled up in a few years when they're not profitable and be back in the same case as uh, not having
3: enough hook space again? Well, Fred get a kick out of this one. So, so uh, we've always, my partners and I have always been kind of interested in packing plants. We, uh, we were part of the Future Beef investment team, and uh, uh, we were one of the five feed yards that owned it when it went down. We bought it at auction and, and uh, owned it for 30 minutes in the bank, but its debt probably kept us from being broke today. Um, we've had, we've been three other packing plants. Uh, uh, we had a South American packing plant that made a lot of money and, and uh, we sold it. Uh, we ran it for six or seven years and then sold it and uh, uh, because uh, it, uh, they they could have built a brand new plant and and, uh, uh, and it's just a great money maker for us to get out of it. So that's, that's the transition that we're in right now, you know. Now we're seeing more plants come online. $550 million is not very much money. Uh, so if you, if you build a – I'm guessing, Fred, if you build a 2,000-head-a-day a, a plant, you're going to be in the $450 million level to build that plant? It would definitely be, yeah. Be it, somewhere in that Florida. range. And then you're going to have to have another $450 million to operate the thing, to cash flow it. And for two years, you're probably not going to be, you're not going to be running that capacity. You're going to be training people. And, and uh, but it's all doable, you can do this. We've, we've done it before, we've, we've, we've made it work in, in the past and we've failed a couple times at it as well. But uh, uh, I think these people that are coming online, we just, I, know, I don't know if you guys read the, the announcement today that uh, 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 American Food Group is, is going to build a plant in Missouri and, uh, and that plant's going to be probably a combo plant, probably probably with its location, probably gonna be part beef and part, part cows. And uh, I can't get a feel for it. They're talking $430 million investment, so I guess it's, it's 1500 shift deal for now. But that was, that was, that was released this morning. So there's, these plants are coming on. I, I don't know how we keep the smaller plants going, though.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so I'm going to obviously, we, most of you said the 550000000 million doesn't go a long ways when we're looking at a large-scale facility. But for Shane, for yourself, what is your view and uh, maybe some of the uh, participation from getting some some funds uh, through the state or through through the federal government to try and increase your capacity do you have a different look on that money
4: uh obviously you know i kind of covered it already you know I, I think when you look at these smaller groups here you know you just still run into the same issue you spread out skilled labor and that's the biggest issue i know what it what it costs to put equipment into these places, and, and if you really want to be good and efficient at it and make money, what these big packers are doing, you have to automate that line. And when you get in automated lines on them big packing outfits, it's it's a lot of robotics. It's a lot of uh, a lot of things going on that cost a lot a lot of money. You know, um, some of the stuff that I do, you know, as far as value added stuff and different things like that. You know, you can buy some of the smaller pieces, but when you 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 crank through 25, 30 head a day. You know, you can't afford robotics to do that kind of stuff. So it is what it is. Well, and another question that I know folks, somebody
1: was, uh, I'll just ask this one. Uh, Fred, obviously, you sell your product to the the grocery stores. Let's talk about grocery stores buying product from JBS. Who, who's dictating the price that they are paying? Because everyone in here has heard, we're seeing these retail prices for meat continue to skyrocket, and a lot of consumers like to blame the cow-calf producer for that increase. Um, could, could we talk about that relationship that uh, a business like a JBS and the Walmarts of this world have, or, or other, other grocery stores out there, and that, that, cons- that price tag that consumers are paying right now?
0: Uh, you know, it, it's the old theory one too many one too few right now with the kill schedules the way they have previously been run we could kind of write our own ticket on a lot of product the big news is is what What's driving the cutout up the biggest share of it in the last six months to a year is export? I mean we're exporting so much more of our product. That's not going to go away. It doesn't look like any time soon uh, our company uh, we do more and more exports every single day. It's phenomenal how much that is getting pushed out of the country. That is the biggest part, that's the, plus it's a great product, but that is the biggest part that has driven the cutout from 200 to 340, is because the exports. We're, the industry is exporting 20-some percent of the product. We're doing a lot more than that. Our company is just out of the U.S. Uh, that is the big driver on the cutout. <clears throat> getting it out of the country and getting it out of the system
1: And yeah, but of course i know folks are probably thinking though but we're importing beef though too uh to help fill that on, on the burger end of things uh, um what i guess what how, how do you defend yourself on that on that Ab-
0: absolutely yeah. but we're shipping out more middle meats just like china whoever heard of china until six months ago buying 50 trimmings nobody we ship it over by the combo they're buying more and more, all the time, we're shipping in some of the cheaper cuts and stuff like that, but we're exporting some of the high-dollar items. Okay.
1: So, anyone want to jump in on that aspect of things?
3: Oh, well, I'm on a cattlefax call every Wednesday morning, and and uh, this week, uh, to Fred's point, you know, these we see we're talking about these high prices that we're seeing that these retailers are throwing out. Um, they actually, Cattlefax is predicting that uh, we're not going to see the consumer back off of these prices anytime soon. Are, are you feeling that, Fred?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, probably right now there's going to be an opportunity where the middle meats have dropped. They've dropped pretty hard here recently, and here in the near future, we're selling uh, ribeyes. Ribeyes cheap enough that they can feature. It. They quoted ribeyes at nine choice ribeyes at nine bucks a pound yesterday. The cheapest we've seen all year. So that'll buy some demand back too. But we are killing more cattle into a time where things are a little slower, so it's driving the price down. The one too many, one too few. Kim.
2: Lane, I I might just, you asked uh, just a little bit ago, how can these smaller packers um, be competitive enough that they won't be bought out by, by the bigger ones? And in my mind, one of the things that they can have going for them is they're more flexible and more responsive to their customer than a large packer can be Um, that is an advantage if it's enough i don't know but uh, you know our consumers are getting they have lots of choices let's just put it that way and and they're starting to demand more choices and so that is where one area where a, a small packer might have a little edge and
1: when we look at that situation, is there just an extent where you're trying to run too many cattle through these small to medium-sized plants where they, they just aren't making a profit on it? Shane, for and maybe your business model, when is it going to be too big for you to
4: make a profit? Um, you know, I, I don't know how to answer that, I guess, to be honest with you. I, I don't know that it's too big. I, I think once you get into... Um, I've always said about any of these small businesses, right? You either stay ma and pa and you can make a good living, and you can stand up there and do you know, a good majority of the work. Uh, if you're somewhere in the middle ground, and I'm not sure what that price tag is, but I think it's kind of what you're getting at, you're going to lose, and you're going to lose all the time because the middle ground is you're trying to cover too much overhead for the amount of product that you can push through your facility. Or else you go big time and that's where you be able to spend the money to really push enough product through that at that point you're making pennies and nickels per pound and it actually is enough to pay your overhead so i'm not real sure to tell you the truth where that break is especially on the kill side you know i I look at it some on the value added side but that that is definitely the breakdown of how that business works in my mind anyway Mm -hmm. because if i just want to make good money i go in there every day with a crew of six guys and we just knock out what we can knock out and uh and you get in the middle where you're now at a desk and you got a bunch of other guys working but nobody's getting enough done to actually pay the overhead. That's the point where we start getting in trouble.
1: How hard is it for you to sell the the, the, the cuts and the extras that no one's going to eat or, or want to process? Uh, how hard is it for you to do that? Do you have a market? And how hard is it to compete f- f- to, with a larger packing plant that has trade relationships with overseas customers?
4: Well it definitely becomes a challenge for us uh, on certain products, right? You know, the one thing we did is from the ground up, we decided we were gonna figure out where our trim was going first, and then we were gonna worry about how many of them we could kill. So I wanted to make sure that the trim was out of my way. The thing the big packers have the advantage of us for is how much of their product gets used that we can't even sell. So if I'm hauling product to the dump at $50 a ton, you know, that's pretty excessive amount of money that I have to put out that I'm losing on that same calf that these guys are turning around and selling it to somebody or making it into something that's usable. So it needs to be almost like a further processing opportunity here in the state. We've looked at this as as processors a couple times, trying to figure out how can we uh, make more money on the stuff we're throwing away instead of paying to throw it away. Um, Those are some of the things we're having issues with that I don't know how we're gonna compete because it's gonna to have to be big time, right? When you really look at all the processors, each guy can't do his own thing. It's gonna to have to be a collaborative effort by all members to be able to get something big enough that you can actually sell some of that product that we're throwing in the garbage right now. We, we spend a lot of time producing dog foods, dog treats, different things like that, just so we can utilize some of those things and make some value added out of it, so. Fred, do you wanna
1: talk about uh, that side or, or anything like that? Uh, You're good. Okay. No. <laughs> um, so obviously, when we talk about you know uh, engaging with consumers, sustainability has really been the, the it word in agriculture and for consumers. It, it always seems to a new 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 word comes around every few years. But how has uh, sustainability and how people view sustainable em- uh, agriculture been impacting uh, the different sectors of your businesses?
2: Well, in the cow-calf side of things, um, for one, to us, sustainability is just still being here. Um, And and that takes taking care of your land, taking care of your water, and of course taking care of your animals. So on the cow-calf side of things, it might be a little bit simpler. Um, I think the challenges increase as you get further down the food chain. But you know, NCPA is and others I think uh, Tom you might be in, been involved with this too but the. US uh, roundtable on sustainability uh, was something that we felt uh, as Montana stock growers that we needed to be engaged in to help define what that means and Tom were you a part of
3: that also yeah we're still part of it we had a we had a, for a short time frame it was with JBS and high Plains and World Wildlife fund we were running some product through, a, how many pounds, Jay? About a million. About a million pounds of product through on a, on a, on a pilot project.
1: Okay. And uh, Shane, when, when we look at um, sustainability with your consumers here in, in, uh, in central Montana, are you seeing consumers in this region wanting a certain type of uh, it word on the packaging, or is it just that outreach that you're seeing for your consumers?
4: Uh, you know, I'm not really finding the it word. I, we we designed our business to run it the way we wanted, and and, uh, and try to go find those consumers that are looking for that product. So we're not necessarily pushing hard on any certain dynamic, the natural, the the grass fed, organic, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but we do try to. P- try to really push out the local side. I, and, and that's the big thing. And a lot of people like the idea that uh, I could show them a picture of the ranch that uh, cattle come off of or different things like that. But I, I still think in all reality, 90% of people go to Costco, go to Albertsons. That's that's easy shopping. They're looking for convenience more than the it word in my personal okay. opinion. Okay.
1: And uh, uh, maybe uh, jumping back to, to Tom there, when uh, you are reaching out to, to the, those uh, your your current 280 customers there, what is the feedback you give them and they give you when you're looking at uh, sustainable egg?
3: So they they responded well to uh, improving our quality grades. You know we talked about that. Um, now we are, we are involved with an NHTC program that goes through a major uh, uh, retailer. And uh, so uh, we've, third party verification, source and age verified the cattle uh, all the way through. Um, now our next thing we've got going is, uh, with this thing is what's the, what's the sustainability, what's the carbon footprint look like of these cattle? So it's, that's hard to define at this point. Uh, we do have a, a, a 10,000 acre grazing program. We've been, we turned into regenerative ag and, crop rotations and things like that in, in uh, garden city used to be the lar- world's largest corn grower. We now only grows two quarters of corn on it. And the balance of this stuff is uh, is mostly uh, uh putting in more ryegrass uh, irrigated, it's all irrigated of course, people, and uh, more ryegrass, uh, triticale and, and different cover crops to, to manage the rotation. And so a third of that farm ground is now in, in a, in a constant, uh, uh, cattle grazing rotation. And so we're going to be moving into, well, half of that will be grazed out, uh, all the time. And it'll we'll be running cattle on it year round right now. we keep 5,000 cattle on it. That's the first, the first thing we've done to sequester carbon and, 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 what our carbon footprint is the next thing we've done, we've expanded in, we've, our company's expanded into the Flint Hills of Kansas. We bought some country out there and we'll be running cattle out on, on this, uh, on this, and, these guys will hopefully be part of our program with this retailer going forward. They're they're engaged with us as the retailer is, along with Nature Conservancy and and Noble Institute out of Oklahoma. Uh, and so we're, turning, so we're studying methane gas emissions on the grazing side of this thing out here as well. So, so when, we, when, when the retailer we're working with talks to us, that's the biggest thing they get kicked around about is, what, what, is our, what does our carbon footprint look like? So we're trying to make progress in that area right now.
1: And that was one of the questions somebody had for you was, uh, uh, do you measure both methane emissions from the live animal or just the fecal material?
3: We're doing it all live animal, green feed, or, or, I, I should have explained myself, our green feed machines are all taking samples of cattle as they belch when uh, as they're alive. And we're doing different, at this time also, with, uh, with our grow safe nodes and our, and our green feed machines and it depends, it's one deal, we're, we're testing, we're getting to test some products here in about 30 days on that mitigate methane uh, emission.
1: And on the methane topic, uh, um, Fred, uh, someone asks um, how much methane is emitted from cattle in JBS facilities? That's a pretty vague, do you have an answer for that?
0: I apologize, not a clue. (laughs) I do know the methane stuff. Uh, We do use the methane from our lagoons to run generators at all our plants other than one. Uh, They're tarped over and pump it back in, and we are using that currently. So just maybe
1: expanding upon that, when we're trying to, to market to consumers and to lawmakers about agriculture's role in being a positive force in the climate and sustainability conversation, uh, what, what is JBS doing on behalf of cattle producers to help share, you know, the, the story of sustainability uh, for, in, in the cattle business?
0: Well, be honest with you, that's going to be over my head. Uh, that's a progress. A work in progress. We're gonna, we're going to get some things changed. We'll end up having to buy carbon credits. We'll uh, we'll have to work around it. But I'd be honest with you. I don't know. Okay. And here's a question, kind of on
1: that same sustainability front. Bob sits. He put his name down too. So so uh, uh, his question, and I'll just read it how how it's written. Um, so it goes. My question. Uh, uh, he goes. Sustainability is the buzzword. My question is: Would the packing industry be interested in using a pricing structure of 30% of the price of cattle off a box beef, 30% off a live cattle market, and the rest off of grids and/or formula contracts? Reason one: the balance up and down on fat cattle market. Reason two: catastrophes like the uh, fire, the the Holcomb plant fire, uh, COVID, etc and other factors out of our control and would reduce big swings in fed and fat cattle markets would be good for the long term.
0: I, I agree, and actually we are looking at uh, creating a program like that. We're working with the company, drawing up some figures and seeing what that would look like in the long run to price cattle off of the boxes and share the P&L both ways.
1: Well, thank you for that. And we're just gonna try to go through these questions. I know we're trying to stay on time, but I, I think we're gonna get have a lot more enjoyment from these questions and having our, answers, uh, our questions answered. Um, here, here's a question. Will old processing plants be replaced by smaller regional plants that are labor friendly for future structure? What are your thoughts on that? Those older plants that may be uh, uh, just being fully replaced by smaller regional plants is the question. You see that happening? Well, would you like to see that happen?
2: I would like to see that happen, and then there's certainly some people that think that is the direction that we'll be going. Um, You know, there's some advantages to freight, there's advantages to labor, not being so concentrated. Um, I could imagine that tendency, but but, uh, I'd like to hear what the rest think.
4: Shane, I'll have you go first. You know, I think it still boils down to efficiency. You know, the more plants you put together, the more it costs. The more marketing you got, everything everything adds up. So, so realistically, I, I like the idea. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm I'm all for it. I'm just saying, from a from a business standpoint, I, I think you lose a lot of efficiency when you start doing that kind of stuff because, uh, you know, you're at that scale. You can push product through instead of building uh, 20 of them that do a third of that. It's just so much more effective and efficient to do one of them that does. Uh, a lot of it, so...
1: Fred, would we ever see JBS go more regional and not as big
0: in some of these places? Well, well, currently, we already have six out of our nine plants are regional plants, basically, counting the Hiram, Uh, where they kill anywhere from 1,000 to 2,300 a day. Uh, Some of them, although they're all single shift, we only have the three big plants that are double shift and currently the one in grand island i was just over there friday we're building a new uh, harvest facility onto that plant 105,000 square foot uh, just for the new harvest uh, we think with automation we'll be able to eliminate between 60 and 70 employees and increase our chain speed from 390 to 420 so it'll help out and how uh, help out in that neighborhood that'll be up and running sometime by mid-january uh, but it's quite quite a facility. But it was originally going to be right at a hundred million dollars to build, and I think they're going to blow right through that number. It sounds like. So I don't think they will take those plants to single shift, no sir,
3: and make them more regional.
1: Uh, Tom, from your perspective, what uh, what are your thoughts on those more regional plants?
3: I'm not opposed to them at all. I think I think it'd be great, but you know. Uh, yeah, if we look back in history uh, of the business, the, and especially if we get more automation going, there, there's a huge investment in in a per head basis, and and you know, I actually I, I just don't know the math on that, uh, but but that's going to be that's going to be part of it, I guess. I don't know where it's going to go.
1: Okay. Uh, Fred, another question for you. The question is, with JBS's push for net neutral by the year 2040. Uh, this comes from commercials currently airing on Bloomberg uh, is where they got that uh, information. As a buyer, what will you be looking for cow-calf producers to be doing to comply with that goal with CO2 and methane accountability? You didn't think I'd be able to read periodic numbers, did you? <laughs> uh, what, as a buyer, what, I guess what would you be looking for uh, with the company's goal of, of trying to reduce that?
0: I apologize. That stuff's over my head, to be honest with you, that we haven't made decision what direction we're going to other than we have committed uh, some big numbers and to get done fairly soon. But I honestly am not familiar with enough to even talk about it. Sorry.
1: So we won't be seeing, like, uh, that your buyers are being out in the countryside only buying, you know, that, you know this stamped type of cattle that have been sold. You can't, you can't talk about
0: it. Honestly, I think it's probably going to happen down the road. But it's not today.
1: Okay. I guess. What are you guys' thoughts on that? As a cow-calf producer, um, looking in the sustainability conversation uh, of trying to let me let me just re- grab that one too. Um, what, what would you? How would you feel about trying to comply with that? How would you have to be incentivized, uh, price-wise or ethics wise Jim? What What are your thoughts there?
2: You know. We as an industry would be happy to do it if it's if if we get paid for it. I, I think there's many things that that we can do on the cow calf end of things to to um, um, sink carbon in our soils and and uh, but it, it it costs some money. If we get paid for it, we'd be happy to do it.
1: In as a feeder, I know we talked about that. Do you want to add in on that, or should we roll on to the next question, Tom?
3: You know, we're we're exploring that right now um, with our purchase of some, of some ranch ground out in in eastern Kansas, um, and and uh, this joint venture is with a, with the retailer, Nature Conservancy, and and the other people I talked about as well. Again, and we just don't know, we just don't know what the costs are to make all that happen, and and to and to really, you know. Uh, m- you know the, the 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 methane problem is 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 perceived to be out in the pasture lands is where it is right now so so that's it that's a that's not been studied close enough to know i don't know if anybody really knows those numbers so so we'll be starting this year trying to find out what they are and then we'll go from there but i you know i you know that's that's what we're trying to learn
1: yeah, and I'm going to ask you, you. You've mentioned Nature Conservancy and some other groups out there, and there may be some uh, folks sitting out in the audience that that don't really trust those groups. What, what, why do you work with them?
3: <laughs> they lend me credibility, not not to you people at all, because you know Nature Conservancy they they don't make money; they just use our money, right? And but 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 they. It, we have to look at this marketing thing a little bit differently I think than what we have in the past Uh, I can remember the day I brought in I hate to keep picking on Jay over here but we brought World Wildlife Fund up uh, two years ago Jay and you had to apologize for a dead polar bear you had in the lobby of your damn office you know and uh, that he was kind of upset about that but but she we went ahead and qualified him for the program but uh, it's hard Um, but the thing about it is is it's not what it's not what we think we have a product to sell and uh we have to look and see what the consumer is really really thinking and and what do they want and it it sounds ridiculous to do that but uh you know we found out that they wanted they wanted choice cattle they wanted prime cattle so you delivered and what is what has it done just think if we hadn't if you guys hadn't responded to that and so what's the next thing? Well, we're all choice now. We're going to, hell, it won't be long before we're all prime. Then what do we got to sell, guys? What are we going to do then? Then I, then I think, I think, I think if we figure this out, I think this, this, uh, this, uh, this carbon deal could be, could be something that maybe we get paid for. But that's, uh, we're in the early stages of finding out, you know, if that's doable. <laughs>
1: um, uh, Fred, going back to you, uh, uh, the question is, what percentage of cattle harvested at JBS plants are at least partially owned by JBS prior to harvest?
0: We do not, uh, we do not feed any cattle, period, anymore. Okay. Completely out of the business.
1: And you got out of the business two or three years ago, is that right? Uh, little...
0: Spring of 18. Okay.
1: And another question is, what is the process of getting carcass data back to producers?
0: Uh, just talk to your local buyer. He, he can get you your information. If you need tag transfers, You can uh, line them up, they do those certain days, but absolutely, just talk to your local buyer they can get you taken care of.
1: Um, Because I know we're going down on time here, here's a a question. Um, As a food security issue, is it wrong for non-USA companies to own the packing plants, grain terminals, oil, gas companies, et cetera? Are US consumers to be held hostage over something production there? Food production, sorry. Are U.S. consumers to be held hostage over food production? Jim, what is your take on that?
2: Well, certainly something on the back of my mind. Um, but, you know, this is a free country with, with uh, businesses being able to sell to, to whomever they want to provide a certain uh, criteria is met. So, I mean, that is a challenge. Certainly, I, I don't like to see it and certainly don't want to see any more of it.
3: Tom, what are your thoughts? I think Jim answered that well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm with Jim. <laughs> Shane? Uh,
4: you know, I, I think it's something we should be concerned of, you know, and, and be aware of, I guess, my biggest thing. Uh, but I, I do believe, you know, you live in the United States of America. I I think we can step in and make stuff happen, and, and that's the important part of who we are. We, we're built to win, so... You know, I think in the long run, you can make it happen. So.
1: When, when you're attending events, Shane, whether it's uh, meat cutting conferences or whatever it might be, what are some of those opportunities you see in the future of automation in, in, uh, in processing plants of, of your size? And, and I'll ask uh, uh, Fred that same on the bigger point. How, how is technology going to play a role? We've all talked about labor, about labor up here. Obviously, the cost of technology will play a role. But how do you see technology playing a role in your processing line?
4: Uh, you know, for us, they they're coming out some great equipment. You know, you twenty years ago you wouldn't have been able to get your hands on as a small processor. So they're they're starting to mass produce more of that stuff. So where guys like me that that can afford it, you know, if if I put in a one hundred and fifty thousand dollar machine, you know, I can I can figure it's going to pay for itself in in two and a half three years. You know, we're you know. 20 years ago it would have cost you way more than what you could do it would take you 10 years to pay something like that off so there's a lot of things like that i think the tracing and traceability of our products is is a huge thing so um, there's a lot of new programs out there so that we can track our product where it came from all those kinds of things if we have an issue with any products we can get that in a recall situation or whatever it might be fairly quickly to me those are the big things in my mind as an owner that i want to know the technology is there for so that i have that food safety and food security all the time throughout my facility that's probably the biggest technology but obviously the labor side of it just so that we can produce i mean we've got a we put in a smokehouse this year just for an example that uh, cut our cooking times in half and and it was big enough we're, we're producing you know the, the carts will hold almost five times what the other cart would with the other smokehouse and we also cut our times in half on top of that so those kinds of things make a big difference and then our packaging equipment where it used to take three or four people to package the product we put through that smokehouse. i've got one person doing it and the machine does the rest so um, there's a lot of things out there that are making our lives a lot better as far as that goes but we still have those technical skilled positions that you just have to have somebody there with a knife and getting after it and uh, nothing nothing to fix it for us small guys yet as far as that kind of goes
1: is Fred, uh, say, same line of question there. As more uh, automation and technology come, can come into these plants that hasn't even been created, uh, is, that helps lessen the cost on labor. Is that a way to get send some money back uh,
0: down down the beef supply chain the other way back to cow calf producers? No, oh, absolutely. But they're working on different stuff out of Australia and out of Denmark, and I mean they're just coming out right now in Grand Island. We're putting in the back saw where you split the carcass in half. They're like 97% accurate. You've got no employees. It's just a big arm with the saw in it that splits the carcass from top to bottom, which is a very skilled job. I mean, it's one of the higher paying jobs, and uh, they're going to install that. They've made real good progress on it. It's actually just slicker than a whistle, just no time. Cuts them in two. But they're doing more and more of that all the time all over the world, inventing stuff like that.
1: So what are some ideas, if you were able to sit down with the heads of JBS, and, uh, what, what are some ways that you, are recommendations you would
0: have to help, uh, help everyone in the supply chain make more money? Well, I hate to keep saying it, one too many, one too few. We're right around the corner from one too few where I think the supply chain's going to turn around and start making money. Packer is making a lot of money right now. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. But there's one too many right now we just got to get the corner turn, like Tom said, to have one too few, and the cattle feeder will get the margin back in his pocket.
1: Do, do we need to see more slow, uh, cold cow processing facilities and for bulls as well pop up along the way, so we're seeing more of that meat stay here in the market as well?
0: Well, you're already seeing, seeing that on the, on the cow kills. I mean, just like Tom was just talking about, uh, American Food Group's building a new, new cow plant. Uh, I, th- I think all that stuff's going to happen we're going to take care of it and create more, of, more demand and more hook space for cattle with less cattle eventually. I think that's within six months.
1: Now we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, beef genetics being uh, uh, mixed with dairy genetics as well. How is the dairy industry going to impact uh, cow-calf beef producers in this room?
0: Well. I'd be honest with you, they always had the dairy cattle. So it's not, it's not going to increase the actual cow herd side size in the country. It doesn't look like to me. Uh, but it definitely makes a lot of difference on these crossbreds. We're seeing more and more of them pop up uh, all over the country. Plants like our regional plants that kill cows and Holsteins, eventually they'll have to go to the crossbreds and start producing those. Uh, products in those plants because there's not going to be enough uh, regular Holsteins to harvest.
1: So Jim, um, what, I guess there's a lot of producers that on my news programs we, we always uh, talk about uh, having fairness and uh, having uh, market opportunities for producers. What, uh, what is your hope as we look at the Department of Justice investigations into possible market manipulation?
2: Well, I hope that they don't find any, you know, so we have confidence in what's been going on. But if there is some, I hope that it is found. Does that make sense? Yep. (laughs) Does
1: that answer, is that okay for everybody? Um, and, and so uh, that was just I know that that was a question everyone would be asking but we are seeing a lot of, a lot of legislative proposals out there uh, Jim what do you think of some of the solutions that are out there to, to try to bring uh, uh, more profitability and transparency into the marketplace
2: you know uh, this has been a very frustrating time um, from the packing plants back in the last especially two years and and I know that there's a lot of frustrated people um, in cattle business because of that, and I'm one of them. Um, I, I'm I'm glad to see that more and more um, cattlemen are backing away from a government solution. Not that government can't help, I think they do have a role. Uh, Department of Justice would be one example, but um, my experience with government and its programs is not a very Positive one and I just really would be very nervous about having the federal government to engage with our markets you know Just look at the history of the of wheat farmers and and what what they went through with asking for the government to, to get involved with Their markets it took them decades and decades to get out from underneath that and I don't want to see the cattle business follow that example so I'm glad to see that a lot of us are kind of turning back away from that.
1: Okay. Well, I am getting that, uh, we're way over time, <laughs> sorry. Um, last question, um, wh- where where, where do we go from here? I guess that's the last question. Fred, I'll start with you and we'll work our way back.
0: You know, it's, it's, it's getting, like Tom was talking about genetics, it's just unbelievable how they've changed it. The demand is on the upper sides of it, the prime, the upper two-thirds of choice, uh, Some of the black programs that we have in our plants, that all all majors have their own CAB brand, Uh, but you can sell more and more prime and upper two-thirds of choice you can shake a stick at. So we need to keep improving it uh, all the way along. The selects are hard, we have a hard time moving selects, no rolls, we have a real hard time moving any of that. But the demand is there for the prime and the upper two-thirds of choice. The industry's just done a fabulous job All the way across the country so i think we need to keep working in that direction shane you know i i don't know
4: that i've got a a real good answer for that you know as as far as who's sitting up here i'm kind of a small player in the whole scenario Um, and 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 i don't know what the answer is you know i think a lot of it's educating that consumer of of the quality of product that you're dealing with um, trying to get as much value out of it as you can Um, You know from my understanding as far as the world goes we probably pay less for food than anybody else in the world and uh, sometimes that's uh, You know kind of goes right back to the cattle guy that uh, takes a beating over in my opinion so um, You know, I I don't know how you change it but I I, I think that's the one thing is getting those people to enjoy what they're eating and uh, And trying to push for
3: a better opportunity for everybody involved Tom I I think is I think as far as America goes and, and, and ranchers and, and the cattle business out here, I, I don't think anybody can outproduce us. Well, we, we know that's a fact. So we're very good at production. We're, we're tremendous at production. I'd like us to be a little bit more fleet on the foot in responding to consumers and uh, trying to figure out, you know, as an entity, you know, what is the next move? We need to do that ourselves instead of being wait to be told what it is. And I would like, and I don't know how to do this, but I'd like to, I'd like to figure out how to be a better marketer.
2: Jim? Uh, To me, consumer confidence is very important. And I think that um, right now we have a lot of consumer confidence. We see that in the prices at the retail level. And I think that's something we don't want to take for granted. Um, I think we want to be sensitive to what they want, because that's what they'll pay for, what they want. Um, We need to be very sensitive to that.
1: Well, again, we covered a lot of topics. We jumped in and out of the weeds on different things as well. And I, we probably, I wish we would have slated like three hours for this, Jay. Um, but again, hopefully we, we try to get through as many of those questions. Uh, There's a lot of similar questions as well. But again, we just want to thank Jim Steinmeiser, Tom Jones, Fred Nichols, and Shane Flowers for uh, joining us here. They're, they're probably going to be around the convention for a little bit. Again, thank you for joining us on the Lancaster Ag Podcast on this beef supply chain agriculture, conversation. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster, and Nordlandcommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.